Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome back a good friend of the show, Emmy-winning screenwriter Brooks Wachtel. He's going to talk about, well, movies, film, TV, writing, books, a lot of stuff. It's a very, very conversation. Brooks is, as always, really delightful. Please sit back and enjoy. This is a recorded conversation, so please don't call in. Hi, Brooks. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. I haven't talked to you in a while. How are you? Reasonably copacetic, <laughs> given the strange times in which we live. It is weird, isn't it? They say it's like the separation of people is like World War Two when people were like in bomb shelters or in their homes staying in place and stuff like that. But the the other stuff is like the pandemic, the Spanish flu. Um it's just kinda strange, don't you think? It it's very strange. I mean that there are some massive similarities and also some stark differences. Uh, for one thing, we have, thanks to technology, a way to reach out and video call with people, which you know, we actually get to see them, which was something unavailable to those past generations. Uh, World War II, of course, you had the home front, and then you had the, the, the combat areas, and they could only communicate by letters or occasionally V-discs, which were recordings, records. But, you know... Um, if they were in the combat zone, you were waiting to find out if they were going to make it through the war or not. Of course, I guess you could sort of say that with the virus, of who's going to make it through the virus. I think one, one big difference between uh, the United States in World War II and the United States in the pandemic is leadership. I think there's a vast difference between Franklin Roosevelt and the current occupant of the White House. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um <laughs> Very much so. Um, but it's a very strange time. I mean, it's like watching people trying to figure... I, I was thinking maybe instead of like using each other's elbows and, and, and stuff like that, maybe we should go back to Jane Austen's time, you know, Regency, and like the ladies nod to each other and, 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 and curtsy to the men and the men nod to each other. <laughs> Or, you know, the uh, the use of the fan to signal whether you're interested or not. Yes, and gloves, you know, the, either white gloves for day or long black gloves for evening. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think we've, we've sort of moved into a more obvious era when the difference between how you, how you use your fan or how you use your gloves as opposed to... Um, you know, wearing a T-shirt that says, here's my number, call me. <laughs> I actually never saw that. Um, Is that something in L.A.? <laughs> Is that a new one? <laughs> uh, I, I think it just might show the difference in approach. <laughs> oh, God. I know. Between, between, you know, my reputation is ruined and can I have these pictures in higher resolution? It's just crazy. I mean, it's just like, I really, I mean, there's a level of privacy that I, 
I think is gone. And civility, which is definitely gone. But it's... Uh, maybe, or, or maybe it's just different, and maybe it, maybe it... Maybe when you look back at the past, we're looking through it in a way that was nicer than it might have been had we been there. That's true. And there were different prejudices and, and problems than we have today. Very, very true. And um, the Jane Austen England looks wonderful in movies. I'm not sure I'd like to live there. And if I did, it would depend on which class I was in, because unless you had loads of loot, it wasn't a particularly nice existence. Oh, I know. And um, girls' lives were crap, basically, really. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 this is probably... Not that it's perfect, and not that there isn't vast room for improvement, but in terms of women's opportunities, one of the best eras in human history. Yeah, I mean, and we also uh, it it's a long it's been a long fight. Um, I think modern women really started in the 1920s, and we go forward and we go backwards like every other issue that there is. It's yes. a very maybe, strange thing. Maybe earlier than the 20s. The suffragettes of the turn of the century. That's were true. Quite bold, quite bold. I was thinking more like working girls and, you know, girls going to work for a living because they weren't allowed to during the suffragette movement. I mean, those were maids and uh and governesses that could, uh, if they could get away, which they couldn't because they were restricted to the home, um, the yeah, wives and mothers. Typist was another thing, so the typewriter typist was a... Yeah, but that, didn't that come like, I'm sorry, didn't that come like in the 1920s because it was men up until then? I'm not sure, I think they were female typists earlier and operators, um, they very quickly Made it made a mark as phone operator, but but yes, I mean these are when you're talking about trying to find the three or four jobs that there was open to them. Clearly, that's the problem. There are three or four jobs open to women, and you know today, and again, I'm not saying it's perfect. There is a vast amount of improvement still needed, but it's better than it was, and hopefully, we'll get better than it is. Uh, yeah. And, well, the other issue, and that hasn't changed, in fact, I think it's worse than it was, is ageism. Ageism, yes, ageism is with us, and, um, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, because I have like to say I've graduated from ingenue to sententious old coot. <laughs> well, but, I, uh, I actually saw it earlier. I saw it when I was in my 30s and 40s with my parents. And the the my dad was in his sixties. He looked great. He was working full time, and they called him the old man. Which I never. I mean, he and he didn't act like an old man. He did his job like everybody else. He was he ha, he was completely up to date with the world, and yet they still called him the old man because he was in his sixties. Well, you know, a few years ago there was a class action suit by writers over 50 in Hollywood against the major agencies and studios, many of, many of which settled because they had incautiously put in emails and notes and letters uh, instructions not to hire older writers, and it was there in black and white, so they settled. Now, 
I think I think it's still going on, but they don't put it in writing. But However, it's I I must say I'm I feel lucky. I'm older than that. I'm working on two different projects, and I'm about to sort of retire, or as my editor says, you're just saying no more often. So um, I, I feel grateful that I'm past fifty and still sort of in demand. Yeah, but and it's good that it's your choice. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm retiring, not being retired. Exactly. But I always thought it was odd. It was like women can't write a, a good male, according to the studios. Older men and older women can't write younger people, like they can't remember that far back. I, I, I never really understood the studio's reasoning for these things. Um, because they aren't run by writers. <laughs> That's true. Um, The studio reasoning is they want to appeal to a young demographic, and they have the mistaken belief that only a young demographic can speak to a young demographic. But isn't that weird? There is a certain logic to it. It's a a fallacy, but there is a logic to it. And again, you know, it discounts all of the all of the craft, all of the observation, all of the talent that experienced writers have to be able to create worlds and characters beyond their own particular being. And also, uh, I just realized when I read I read novels a lot, and um, I, I realized when I read a novel that the person writing the novel is much older than the characters that they write. Sometimes they write a good variety of different characters of different ages and different sexes and different lifestyles and all that. I mean, and they're not part of all that. That was purely observation. Why wouldn't it be the why wouldn't it be the same in film? Because when you're writing a novel, you're not dealing with a multitude of layers of executives. Ah. Many of which, some are older, some are younger. Uh, some of them have done a lot less than the older writers. Uh, you know the old the old joke of you know the old writer or writer director you know elder filmmaker coming into a young executive. I think I think I heard the story about Billy Wilder, but I'm not sure if it's true. But you know, he, Billy Wilder walked in, and the young exec said, "So what have you done?" And Wilder said, "You first. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I love it. <laughs> it's sort of I mean, like Judy Dench when she um, she was nominated for her Oscar, um, and uh, the different American interviewers said, uh, "So what have you done before uh, Shakespeare in Love?" And she goes, "Well, a lifetime's worth of work. Do you really want to hear all of it?" <laughs> Yeah, so you get that. Of course, today it's it's easy to find out what you've done because it's all on the IMDb. Right. Uh, but so I think I think that might be part of it. Also, I know sometimes sometimes younger showrunners might be intimidated by older writers. Uh, I think there's also a feeling that older people in the industry are, let's say, more experienced people in the industry that have been there and done that, or less inclined to put up with crap. Well, I can understand and, that. But on the other hand, you know, 
many times I suppose swallow it because you want to keep the job so there, there's all of that um, we've been there we've made the mistakes we we know what the problems are but isn't and that good isn't that, isn't that the way it should be it's the only business I can think of where you take things off your resume because you don't want to look like you've been around too long and had too much experience. Uh, and I find it so weird. I I can't remember which one of the staff writers for MASH who won two Emmys had to take MASH off his resume because it made him look old. I was like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Well, th th that is the business, and you know, I I'm grateful that I'm as old as I am and still working and in demand here and there. No, I mean, yes, I worked more when I was in my 30s and 40s, and even into my 50s. But <clears throat> excuse me, it, it does happen, and uh, but it's a crazy business. Also, there's the other aspect of the business for a writer is remember, it's a work for hire, and you're writing to make other people happy. Yeah. You get, you get notes. You get notes from people who you know, really, in many cases, aren't qualified to give them. Some people, sometimes you get great notes, and you get sometimes you get great notes from smart people. But the other side of that is you can get insane notes from idiots. <laughs> oh. my, my, my agent's husband, a wonderful writer named Cheryl Hendricks, um, who, who's a veteran writer, I mean, going back to combat and many, 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 many shows had a phrase that I loved. He said, the first draft belongs to the writer. After that, your job is to save the script. <laughs> <coughs> That's great. I love that. Someone years ago wrote a very famous book. He, I wish I had done this, but he collect, he kept all of his notes and he published them. And, and the name of his book was A Martian Wouldn't Say That. <gasps> uh, he had worked on My Favorite Martian. Ah. <sighs> God, I love that. And I, just, I was just wondering, how do you respond to a note like that? Uh, Martian wouldn't say that. I mean, I guess you could look at the producer or whoever gave the note and say, well, maybe not the ones you know. <laughs> the ones I know say it all the time. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, 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 I always end running into Martians and having these intense conversations with them. <laughs> Well, maybe they're the Martians from the War of the Worlds. They don't talk much. They just incinerate a lot. Yeah, that's true. Oh, but, but I uh, actually really love that show. When I was a kid, yeah, I love that show. Remember, <laughs> I, I, I was working on a show, and I got a note for a, a shot that says, we can't animate this. It was an animated show. And I looked at it. It's a point of view of a background. Why can't they do that? Uh, I asked him, what does this note mean? And the producer came from, I forget who it came with, but the person I asked looked at the note and said, I don't know, it's a shot of a background. There's not even animation in it. It's a static shot of a painting. That doesn't make any sense. And that's the kind of notes you get all through. Yeah, I mean, you just get notes that... You, you have to just figure out the ones you can do, the ones that are important, the ones that don't make any difference and save your fights for the one that just unraveled the entire story. So is it that they ha do this because they're like trying to show that they are supposed to be in their position 
and give a good impression to their higher ups and stuff like that. Is that why they give notes that are that doesn't make any sense? <laughs> you know, I think it's gonna. There's so many people. I've been on shows where you get notes from four or five different people, many of them contradictory, and some people have valid notes, some people have a different take on the story, and other people, it's just like you say, they're giving a note because if they don't, someone's going to say, why are we giving this person a paycheck? Even if it makes no sense, the note that they give. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard the story, and again, I don't know if this is true, because I'm not connected with The Simpsons, but I had heard that the, part of The Simpsons contract is they didn't have to get network notes. And if that's true, and it's been on the air for how many decades? Long time. Like 20 it years, isn't it? It shows you how valuable network notes really are. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, there was a show called I Dream of Genie, and some oh. genius at the network said, wouldn't it be great to have the two lead characters married? And they did it. The sexual chemistry died, and the show was off the air the next season. Yeah. Yeah, and Barbara Eden tried to fight it, but it, nobody listened to her. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you get geniuses who know what's best, I mean, and I've dealt with them. So anyway, I guess the point of this entire thread here is um, that when you are a writer in Hollywood, you are a work for hire. You're writing to make other people happy. And you to, to compensate, they pay you well. Yeah. But you... You know, and then then you also have the thing is that writers are fungible. Your work can be given to another writer. What ends up on the screen may have very little to do with what you originally wrote. That happens all the time. So it, it's it features, and I'm talking features here mostly because TV is a little different. So features, you know, they're they're, they're writer friendly and they're not writer friendly. I mean, you you have. You, know, you have the thing that the first person that ever sees a movie is a writer on the back of the writer's eyelid. And it's interesting. that's where it starts. And, and nobody in the business has anything to do except sit on their thumbs and twiddle them until the writer delivers the script. Wow. Because every other job in the business is interpreted. And if it's an original screenplay, that's one of the very few totally creative jobs in the film business. I don't mean there isn't great creativity in every other job, but they're interpreting what the writer has delivered. That's the starting point. That's the springboard. So... The writer's the one that starts looking at a blank page if it's an original script. There's nothing there. It has to come from the writer. It always comes the from director, the word first. The word is everything. Directors working from the script. The costume people are working from the script. The art directors are working from the script. I mean, everything is starting from that document. And the writer is the one that's looking at nothing. And that's different if you're doing an adaptation, but if it's an original script, the writer's looking at nothing. And if he's really good and the script gets, you know, made and... and and, and they've carried what he's written to its logical conclusion, he gets to sit in that theater and see a film by the director on the credits. Why is that? 
Uh, partly director ego, partly because rules were changed to allow it, and partly for commercial reasons, because directors want to be the star. I'm, I mean, our mutual friend Stephen Sears often asked the question, how many writers that aren't directors can you name? Film or screenwriters. That's true. Very, 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 very few. I mean, I've always thought that if a director wanted the film by credit and didn't write it, and, and first of all, let me just say, there's no goddamn reason to have two credits for one job. And there's a credit that says directed by. But if a writer didn't write it and really wants the credit, I've often suggested it should be a film by the director based on characters, concept, dialogue, and plot by the writer. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I've yet to find a director that wanted to go along with it. But just, uh, you know, it, it's part of, the, part of the nature and fun of the film business. Well, I mean, there are... Uh, directors who are writers, like Billy Wilder and Peter Bogdanovich and people like that. Yes, and, and they're brilliant and wonderful, and many of them became directors because they hated seeing what other directors did with their writing. That was Billy Wilder's motivation. That's true. He he talked about that. And, uh, and, and to see it butchered is basically what he said. <laughs> well, he did have a turn of phrase. <laughs> Well, he was very, you know, he came from Europe. He's very, he was very direct. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many great Billy Wilder stories. He's one of the more colorful figures in our business. Yeah. But he, even he got screwed up occasionally. I mean, one of my favorite Billy Wilder films, we will probably never see complete, which is sad. Which it's is called the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, going to be this big three-hour roadshow film about 1970, and uh, roadshow films were going out of style. But the film was made up of several almost standalone sequences that together had this wonderful theme. And United Artists decided to cut it down by, I guess, an hour or something like that, and they just hacked out sequences. Oh, that's awful. And, and unfortunately, we, we don't have the missing. We have missing footage for one scene with no soundtrack, soundtrack with no footage for another scene, and just stills on some of the others. But didn't Billy keep any of it? Nope, apparently not. It's never been restored. And, and they've tried. Wow. That's just no... That's sad. I also don't know in what at what point it was cut down. I mean, if it was cut down to, say, in work print stage, maybe it was never scored. You know, I, I don't know. At what stage it was it was cut? I always I always find that the movies that might have been that they have little bits of footage very sad. Yeah. So you know. Anyway, <laughs> we certainly got off on a tangent. Oh, my fault. My apologies. No, I'm, that's fun. That's part of that's why it's called chatting with Sherry. Um, because <laughs> we're chatting. <laughs> So, um, what are you doing? I know you're working, um, but what are you doing otherwise during the pandemic? Are you are you relaxing? Are you watching movies? Are you uh, reading? Well, I've been I've been working a lot. I've been working on a documentary with my dog fights partner. Uh, dog fights was a series that she and I created for the History Channel years ago. I love that and show. I, I can't say much about it. it. It's sort of about the music scene in, in Northern California from the 60s to the present, 
and that's about really all I can uh, all I can say. And uh, you know, she and she's in her, she's directing as well, and interviewed just some amazing people from the rock music scene, going back from then till now. And I'm also uh, working on a Friends animated show. It's one I worked on last year. Uh, I'm kind of, you know, semi-retired, but he's a good friend, and it was a fun show, so he asked me to work on it. And I'm working on those episodes with uh, another friend named Lena Poussette, who I think has been a guest on your show. Yep. And uh, she's a a marvelous writer on her own, actress, and magician. We did a magic act together at the castle years ago. So we're doing a few episodes for that. And... um, that's been sort of keeping me busy as well as I, I, I manage an apartment building because uh, well, that's a long story in itself. So I, I've only just had, uh, there's kind of a lull in all of this. So I've just finally had time to sit down and go on Roku and watch some movies. I, I, I it's going to sound weird, but I do a lot of like downloading and stuff like that. So I watch a lot of TV shows and movies, especially stuff I've seen, because I don't want to get really involved in a movie I hadn't seen when I'm working. So I've been watching a lot of old movies. I just, I don't know. There's just something about classics that... Well, that's why they're classics. That's You know they're good, because otherwise they wouldn't be classics. That's true. There's, there's just, it just has a magic, and... It always saddens me when somebody says, oh, well, I won't watch that because it's black and white. I'm like, they could have made it color if they wanted to. They had color. This, this, well, this is it, a choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, if it's, depending on how far back you go, color is horrendously expensive and, and difficult to use if you're going back to the 20s and you know, 30s. But, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love black and white. There's some films I'm great, so grateful we're in black and white and I hate to see in color. I just yeah exactly like uh, to have and to have not with Bogart and Bacall. I mean, can you imagine that in color? Just I don't think it would work. Not really. Not really. Or, or or the Big Sleep. I mean, these are films that any, almost any film noir uh, really should be in a black and white world. Um, I mean, uh, my friend Tom Conkle and Brittany Powell. I think Tom has been on your show too. Yep, and Brittany. Uh, and Brittany. They, they did this wonderful film. Uh, Trouble with my, my business. business. Yep. And, and uh, you know, they shot it in color, intended to release it in black and white, but the distributor wanted it in color. But I think when, when, you, get, when you get the Blu-ray or the DVD, there's the black and white version available because he knew it should exist in a black and white world. What's well, a newer type of show, so, yeah. <laughs> and terrific film. It is. It's a really wonderful uh, movie. I, I, act, I told him that I loved it. Um, just I love that style. I I, I love Boker and Bacall. I love the Maltese Falcon. I remember John. I, I remember John Houston when they want were threatening to make the Maltese Falcon in color, and he actually took them to court because he was so angry. What do you mean to colorize it? To colorize it. Right. He said, if I wanted to make it in color, I would have made it in color. There's a reason it's black and white. Right. <laughs> And it's funny you mentioned the Maltese Falcon because I teach writing classes, and um, I was just lecturing at Deborah Deliso's writing class. Another one I think is going to guest on your show. Yes, she has. Thank and, you. Uh, <laughs> she, she has a she has a class. That mostly, she's an acting teacher, but she has a class that delves into writing. And when we talked about dialogue, you know, 
the classic thing that you need to give every every character a unique and specific voice. If you have a line of dialogue that you could give unchanged to another character, it's, there's something wrong with the line. It's generic. It needs to be changed to make a character specific. And you know, there, there, there's the classic thing that you should be able to look at a script, cover all the names, and just look at the dialogue and know who's speaking by the style of the dialogue. And I told them if you want to see a classic example of that, get the Maltese Falcon. There's five or like five major characters. I think roughly about five major characters. Each one is unique in, in the way they express themselves. Also, Laura, that's also the dialogue is so specific to each of those people. Which one? Laura. The movie Laura. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Laura, yes. They're, they're all cut from the same cloth. I kind of uh, have a yen toward mystery, so that's why I kind of... <laughs> and Laura, of course, had David Raxon's incredible score. Yeah. Yeah, I can't... That just... That beautiful music just sweeps you away into the story. Of course, the acting is tremendous. Every single person in it is brilliant. You can't really go wrong with that. <laughs> I mean, it's well done. In it. It's well done in every department. So that's that's sort of what I and I've been doing a little reading. I read Jessica Bronner's new novel, The First Sin, which I like very much. Yay, Jess! <laughs> and and uh, rec recommend it to anyone out there. Jessica Bronner's novel, The First Sin. It's, it's steampunk, lots of fun. Yeah, he's wonderful. I, I I read it too. It's really a good book. I had her on my show. I um the day before her. Uh, virtual um, um, she had a virtual reading of her book <laughs> and uh, I'm, wor I'm working on the next Lady Sherlock novel yay finally <laughs> it's funny because Jessica's book is about an airship and an airship actually plays a big part in the new Lady Sherlock novel though I guess I guess the difference is Jessica's Jessica's airship is a fantastic steampunk creation, and the one in Lady Sherlock because it's anchored in a more realistic history is is a period authentic airship or period slightly advanced but one that could conceivably have been built in the period. And I had to learn a lot about airships. That's cool though. That's part it's of the fun of being a writer. I wish my dad had been around because my dad actually had flown some blimps when he was in the Navy. And and I, I always I always boast that so I kind of wish my dad was still with us because he was a career naval aviator and hunting submarines and among the other many things he, he flew were lighter than air blimps, which are airships. They're uh, they're not dirigibles. And, and I must say that thanks to my father, from a very early age, I knew the difference between a blimp and a dirigible. For the and rest you know, of us, what is it? Do you know the difference? No. <laughs> well, it's the difference between what's called a rigid airship and a non-rigid airship. Does that mean that there's a structure in one and not a structure in another? Is that it? Exactly. A blimp is basically a big bag, a balloon that's filled up with helium. And if you deflate it, the bag goes down. A dirigible, or Zeppelin, is, um, it's got a rigid structure. And inside it is a lot of bags that have the lifting gas. So even if you deflate all the gas, it maintains its structure. 
and they're much larger. Oh, so that's why the Goodyear blimp is a blimp. Mm-hmm, and the Hindenburg and all the others are were dirigibles. Zeppelins were dirigibles. There's, the term is used kind of interchangeably, but Count Zeppelin was one of the originators of airships, probably the most successful early airship designer and builder, but there were others, so... Zeppelin's kind of, Zeppelin is, was kind of a brand name, like Xerox, that became generic. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still use the word Xerox. <laughs> For copying? Yeah. When that's a specific brand that became a generic for a process. Oh, what was it? I can't remember the type of thing. Remember when, uh, well, um, when you're in school and they handed out the papers, uh, the copy papers, and it was sort of like a blueprint that they put it in and it had that smell to it? Oh, yes. Yes, that was, um, the name, the name just went out of my head. Me too. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, but that was like, I, even though it was that, we used to call it Xerox because Xerox was very popular. Even though we didn't, we were the schools were too poor to use that stuff. <laughs> yes, and I know the word, and I, they used it a lot when I was in school, and it just popped out of my head, yep. which is not all that unusual. Me too. It'd be like right at the tip of my tongue, and it'd be gone. And I use, I use those. I even used to type the type out the the masters, and you know make copies. When I when I was in college, some of the when we do scripts and things like that, we we did them that way. And when I did student films in high school, we did them that way too. Um, I was explaining. They were way too expensive for a school to have. Yeah. Um, I was explaining to a girl, uh, we both watched Mimeograph. the show. Mimeograph. That's it. I couldn't, I was like trying to remember by going through the story. Okay, Mimeograph. That's what it is. Uh, all you younger listeners, look it up. Yeah. It's what, uh, they used to pass out papers, um, in school from a Mimeograph machine. Papers. Look that up too. Yeah. Paper. It's. You know what we used to write notes in the old days. Ah <laughs> oh, well, showing our age, are we? Uh, I still write my first um, draft of my novels and stories on paper. I just, I oh. just feel more connected to it that way. I used to. I, I must say, I gave that up ages ago when I got into TV, and the, they, it was just I had to work too fast. Well, I don't. So, I work. I work myself, so yeah, I still do it. Um, oh, there is. I gave myself a challenge, and I'm working on it. I'm working on a murder mystery. It's the first part of a series, and that is the first thing I'm doing totally in the computer. I'm actually kind of enjoying it. <laughs> well, I do. I do like writing on the computer. I remember when I got my first computer. Hell. You know, amazing ways you could go change things. It was just, it, I found it very liberating in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Um, the, you didn't have to use the whiteout or the uh, little papers to erase your mistakes. I really like that. You didn't have to type over anything. You didn't have to put the paper exactly in the place that it was. This is for people who have never used a typewriter in their lives or a word processor. <laughs> Right, and, and then there was the carriage return, you know, ran out of space, the little ding that would warn you. Beep. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a whole different world. And, and believe me, I love working on the computer. I love doing Photoshop. I, I bought a graphics tablet so I can try to do drawing on the computer. I mean, it's just, it really is a wonderful tool that, that just keeps growing in the things that it allows you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually still have somewhere, I still have my dad's old typewriter, but that thing is sentimental because I think I broke every nail on my hands typing it because it took such a head. It was like an old-fashioned typewriter, and it had such a heavy hand just to get a letter to come out. <laughs> I, re- I remember getting my first electric typewriter in IBM. I mean, that was like the Rolls Royce. Wow. Oh yeah. But it's just it, it, you know, the technology moves on, and uh, at some point we're going to be going like dictating our scripts. Of course, that's nothing new. Rod Serling would dictate many of the Twilight Zone scripts. I know, and I think that's why he did that. F my one of my top favorite episodes. Um, I I never remember the name of it, but it's with Kenan Wynn as a writer, where he creates his characters so real that they on become tape. alive. Mm-hmm. He does it on tape. Right, and and I wondered if that's why it was. Uh, written that way that because Rod Serling at the end he disappears because there's a huge envelope filled with him with his name on it and he and King throws the <laughs> it in the fire. But Rod, but Rod Serling actually interacts. One of the few times he interacts with the story, he's saying, you know, but remember this is just a fantasy. It's ridiculous. It's not real. Yeah. And Keenan has the envelope that says Rod Serling tosses it in the fire and Sterling disappears. It was one of the few jokes like that they ever did on the show. And I like when he's disappearing, he just he has this little smile and he shrugs. <laughs> and then you hear his voiceover. That's what I love that. That's one of my top favorite episodes. I think it's amazing that the Twilight Zone fifty, sixty years old now mm-hmm. and I think it's not just our gen- my generation or your generation that's familiar with the show. I think younger generations probably know Rod Serling and the music, and even if they've never seen an episode, the title connotates something. So it's an amazing achievement. There's very little. I mean, if you if you, if you think of say a TV series season from 1957, 58, 59. Say how much of that is current in pop culture? Yeah, not much. Mm-mm. Twilight Zone is pretty unique. It was it was unique. It was complex. He felt that there were some clinkers, and there were. But oh, you can't have many episodes <laughs> without having some stinkers. Yeah, I know. One of my favorite people was in one of them, Carol Burnett. Oh, yeah, that was not a very good episode. I know. It's not her uh, fault, but no. <laughs> I mean, you know, te- television, especially back then, I think they were doing 36 or 38 episodes a season. Yeah. I mean, that, that chews up a lot of material. And one of the things that made The Twilight Zone so different that would be hard to replicate today on a television budget, though it's becoming a little more possible thanks to green screen, is it was made at MGM. And it had access to the MGM scene dock, the MGM wardrobe department, and the MGM backlot. So you, you weren't limited. Like when, when the Twilight Zone was done in Canada, uh, it was maybe in the early 90s, basically you could have an urban environment, uh, a suburb, and forests. 
But the original show, anytime, any place, any location, Europe, period, modern, future, you know, thanks to the MGM backlog. Before it was gone. Before it was gone. Well, the backlog outlived the series. Yeah. But that was one of the advantages of a big studio. And, and that kind of infrastructure. I think we're starting to get it back in a way with green screen because it's becoming cheap enough to where you can kind of replicate all that. But when I look at those Twilight Zone episodes, I see episodes that could would be so hard to do without that, without that existing studio structure. I mean, just like Stop at Willoughby. I mean, there's... Oh, yeah. That, that was a good one. Oh. Um, you know, and, and, and walking walking distance, and the same set were being reused in the monsters who do on Maple Street. It's just you know the Andy Hardy streets from MGM. And as we talked about, the one with Burgess Meredith, Time Enough at Last, mm-hmm. where the bomb was off, and you know there's it's the shattered landscape, and he's on the steps of the library, and then there's you know the steps of the library have the remains of the time machine Eloy entrance because they've been filming there shortly before then and the sets were still in place so fit perfectly they just added some columns and the debris and among the debris are props from the twi- from the time machine I think that's really you know I would never have known that if you didn't tell me that Brooks really um, the steps were now I look thrill. for it when I see that Twilight Zone episode now I look for look for props from the time machine because you told me that <laughs> Well, the steps themselves, I mean, the time machine didn't have the budget to build that. So the steps themselves came from a 1940s Ronald Coleman film called Kismet. So that was the, that was the joy of having that kind of factory set up, that you had all this stuff you could draw on. You didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time you got a film going. So really, the only places, at least in Los Angeles, left like that would be like Universal Studios and Warner's. Yeah, and Warner's only has a shadow of its former backlot. When yeah. I was a kid, I trained on Bonanza, and we were shooting at Paramount, and Paramount decided to get rid of the Western Street. So Bonanza moved over to Warner Brothers. Isn't that weird? God. I don't think, the, I don't think Warner Brothers still has the Western Street. I'm not sure, but I don't think that exists there either. <laughs> there aren't a lot of Western streets left. No, I think the only place no, I, that's left is Universal. Yeah, maybe, they, may, yeah, maybe that's it. And, and I guess that they're mostly there because of the tour. Yeah, I used but to work they, on the tour. <laughs> I used to work on the tour <laughs> years ago, years and years. I was a teenager. <laughs> yes, it's, it's. I mean, anything that keeps the back lot intact, I'm for. Well, Warner Brothers now, well, we um, it's gone through different names. It's also called Burbank Studios. has a tour now. I, I did a film at the Columbia Ranch. And a few years ago, I went back for an interview and decided to wander around and look at the old sets I've been using. Not there anymore. Behind the Western Street's gone. The uh, European Street's gone all gone. All that's left, the notorious landlady streets kind of still there, but um, you know, very, very little is left. Very little. A girlfriend of mine from Germany came in and she had written to Grace Lee Whitney, and Grace Lee Whitney, it was, um, she played Janice in uh, Star Trek, 
and she yep, took us on a tour of Paramount, and they still had the the big water thing. I don't know if they still have it, where they you, they can fill it with water or not for like um, they used it in Star Trek uh, Four. Oh, oh yes, uh, that was a Paramount the tank. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where the parting of the Red Sea footage was got for the Ten Commandments of the, the water effects. Yeah, and, and so we got to see that in person. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was just nice to have all this stuff around. When I, when I trained on, on Bonanza, the commissary was at the end of the, at that time, at the end of the New York Street. And I'd walk down that street and later realize, oh, well, this is the street where they threw Gene Barry off the truck in the War of the Worlds. <laughs> among 500 million other pictures. Oh, it's just like when I was working at Universal, I realized all the different things I used the MCA building for. It's just, you don't really realize it when you're going to work every day. And then I was, um, I, I went for an audition, and it was in the building, and an older gentleman was the elevator man. They still had elevator men then. And um, when he was taking me up, I was telling him, oh, I recognize this from Colombo. And he goes, Colombo, honey, let me tell you what this building was used for. It was an earthquake, and it was in Tower Inferno. And, I mean, he was just going through all the things to us. I was like, oh. <laughs> Paramount had its own equivalent. The Paramount Administration Building has been used, you know, as foreign embassies. It was specific tech in the war of the world. It's, it's probably got more credits than most actors. And, um, oh my I, God, I, the guy who did Gone with the Wind, I'm just blinked out on his name. David, mm -hmm. David Selznick. His headquarters was used for a lot of um, movie stuff, too, not just for the opening of his movies. Right, I mean, it's, it's uh, at least that building's still around. The studio's gone, but that building is still around. The back lot, uh, the back lot was 40 acres, which uh, was in Culver City, and uh, it lasted through the 60s, maybe into the 70s. Anyway. Anyway, so we're coming to the end. Um, do you have any idea when um, your book's going to come out? I know you don't know when the documentary and the animated film is going to come out, but do you know when your book's going to come out? Any, any hint? No, no, I don't. The first draft is with my editor, Sherry Goodhart, another wonderful guest I think has been on your show. And uh, so waiting for her to get the first draft done, plus I still have to deal with the illustrations, uh, and the pandemic is kind of making that hard, as I was going to be doing some photo shoots to use as a basis for some of the artwork, but I can't do that now. Yeah. And so th there's a lot, to, a lot to work out, so we'll just have to see what happens. I'm hoping it'll be out sometime next year, because, the film, because these books are so heavily illustrated, it, it's more of a production than just writing it and finding a cover and getting it out there. It's almost like doing a mini-movie. Uh, I just want to know what happens next. Um. <laughs> well, it, it, I think it's a great story. It's based on, again, like the first book, there's a kernel of real history that springboards the story. And uh, so you'll, you'll learn real things about the time and the era and the politics and the society. And then there's, of course, Lady Sherlock, our very, very adventurous, very emancipated heroine, and uh, getting involved in the fictional part of the story, and it does, and it does pick up 
um, it takes place two years after the events of the first book, and events in the first book are still being dealt with in one of the characters in, in this in this new book. So there's definite continuity. Some of the some of the same characters are back. So I think I think you'll have a good time with it. I can't wait. Um, for people who haven't heard you before, do you have a website, um, and what social media are you on? I don't have a website, unfortunately. There's a Lady Sherlock page on Facebook, and there's a Lady Sherlock blog, a Lady Sherlock blog on um, Google, I guess. It's not, I haven't actually updated it in a while. I'm sort of holding material back until the new book is more advanced. And uh, then there's my, my Facebook page and the Lady Sherlock Facebook page. So I really, I guess one of the things I need to do is get more involved in social media. I've got a Twitter, uh, which I haven't been too active on, but I'll try to be more active on that. So, And you're on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, and Instagram. I think I, I'm not trying to remember if, if the Instagram is under my name or Lady Sherlock for both. Uh, there's also, if you want to read the first Lady Sherlock book, there's a lot of Lady Sherlock series out there that aren't mine. So use my name, Brooks Arthur Wachtel, and and the name of the book is Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead. That's Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead. That's the one that I wrote. And, and the cover, it's kind of a blue-colored cover with Lady Sherlock on it. And the image of Lady Sherlock is a wonder, a longtime friend, wonderful actress named Tanya Lamani George. You Star Trek fans might remember her as uh, the girl Scotty killed in Wolf in the Fold. <laughs> and, Scotty. Uh, and also, if you're an Elvis fan, she was Little Egypt in the 68 Comeback Special, but I've used her face, and, and she was also an inspiration for the character. So, um, there you go. Thank you so much, Brooks, for taking the time out to come on my show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Always, always love chatting with Sherry. Thank you, and thank you for chatting with Sherry.